Deb Ondo, and this is What's Art Got to Do With It? Conversations about aesthetic experiences and approaches to art and life. Today, award-winning author and activist Jan Phillips. Jan blends East and West, art and activism, reflection and ritual to create transformative workshops and retreats around the world. Her work has been published in the New York Times, Ms. Magazine, Sun, Newsday, People Magazine, and the Christian Science Monitor. She is co-founder and executive director of the Living Kindness Foundation. Let's get to it. So Jan, how did it all start for you? And what I know is religion and spirituality were an early influence in your life. And maybe we can start there, if that makes sense to you. Yes. That makes sense. And I'll just do a real quick flyby because we don't want to dwell long. And anybody who understands Catholic will just get it pretty quickly. Hmm. So Catholic young teen realizes she's gay in early puberty, starts to become suicidal because the Catholic church makes you feel like a terrible sinner. And then the sixth grade nun sees the fire going out of this kid's eyes and she rescued me through this program called positive reinforcement it was a new thing back then so because of her commitment to love me up and to keep reminding me that i was all that intellectually academically athletically she just was relentless in affirming my brilliance even when I had no idea of it myself. But because she saved my life, I thought, whoa, that's what nuns do? They save kids' lives? I better be one, because there's got to be other kids like me that want to kill themselves. So I went six years. I had to wait from 12 till 18. And I never was very clear on, the gay was not a word. So the words we had to wrestle with, am I a pervert? Am I a homo? Am I a lesbian? It didn't seem like the right garment for me. And we're too young to be expressing sexually. So I didn't know quite what I was. And so I go trotting off to the convent thinking I'm just going to become a nun and I'll help kids stay alive. And in there, they discover right away that I am gay. I had only kissed a couple novices, but they figured that out right promptly. (laughs) So by the end of my second year, it was bye-bye. You know, call my parents, send me home at night. So that caused me to have a very serious trauma. And that lasted some 20 years before I could undo that. But it was complicated because even when I got out, the priest, the parish priest said, won't give you absolution if you if you don't stop being gay. As anybody knows, there's no stopping being gay. Right. I said, it would be like asking me to have brown eyes. Yep. Change your eye color. Yep. Don't act on it. Yeah. It'd be like, don't breathe. Exactly. So I had to leave the church. And upon leaving the church, I was 30 years without anything. But in that course, I became a political activist because of the homophobia I was experiencing. My political activism led me to a peace pilgrimage around the world, which led me to metabolize the world religions including all from the East, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Islam. And so as a result of that, I 
I am an embodied divine being as best I can figure out. We're it. Yeah. That thing wants to be embodied. So we're it. So you don't go around. I did once make the mistake of saying I am God, but boy, did I get in trouble. <laughs> so I don't say that, but I, I believe it. Yeah. I think we're it. Yeah. Yeah. Particles of the great wave. Yeah. And Jan, I, I know you, you and I, I think are very aligned on, on this aspect of what it means to be human. And what is that thing we call divinity? We are it. We are the embodiment and it's love. You know, it's love. And we've certainly overcomplicated what possibly could be something really miraculous. We could all be living into miracles and in, into miraculous thinking instead of, instead of fear and the no, notions that accompany sin. So so you you had this amazing experience. You traveled around the world. How did your creative work start to manifest? I think it wasn't until 1975 when I had a photographer friend, Bill Gandino. And he was more like a drinking buddy than anything. But because he was an avid photographer and I was ready to make a motorcycle trip across the country, he said, you can't go on a motorcycle across the country without a camera. I said, I have a camera. I had a Kodak Instamatic. <laughs> I said, I have a camera. It was about as big as my foot. He goes, meet me on my lunch hour. We'll go to the used camera store, buy you a Pentax manual, totally manual. <laughs> and he had 45 minutes left on his lunch hour to teach me about shutter speeds and apertures. So I wow. leave on my motorcycle trip. On my way to California, take all the, he said, shoot in slides only, which are absolutely unforgiving. So I, by the time I get to California, out of a, maybe 20 rolls of film, I probably had five good shots. So I knew I would have to take a night course, evening course called Photography 101. So that's when I did it. As soon as I got to California and I became addicted because when you find your art form, mm. Mm -hmm. I became addicted because I could sense it was right when I was involving myself in the women's movement, right when I was creating a lesbian community around myself with a collective of other lesbians. And I documented everything for fun, every gathering, everyone's pets, everyone's kids, everybody's everything. <laughs> Big eight by 10 glossies everyone's got for refrigerator art. <laughs> and I begin to know than viscerally the power of art the power of not only political power what we are doing scaring people but the power of all those photographs to cause us to think of ourselves as beautiful mm. i made a commitment back then never to never to photograph thin blondes because that was all you ever saw anywhere so i never did thin blondes right but i always looked for women of color lesbians women of size, older women. And so diverse imagery was what I was looking to get. And that was my community. So they made it really easy for me. So then I started to collect when they asked, what kind of photographs do you take? I said, at first, everything. But as I look back on my body of work now, I see what I do is photojournalism. Mm -hmm. My socio-political roots 
you know, had a terrible homophobic experience on campus at a community college in Southern California and marched right over to the professor who taught human sexuality and said, I want to speak to your class. Because he always brought in speakers, like cross-dressers, you know, whatever. He brought the speakers in and I just wanted to talk to them about being so hated for no reason other than I'm born a lesbian. So that was the beginning it all started with just, you know, the whole queer thing. But then the women's movement, then the disarmament movement, because it was wacky there when Reagan was in charge. So that's the genesis story of it. What's wrong around you, you fix. You know, and I was going to say, Jan, that that's what I'm hearing in in the story is is that there is a, a kind of bravery and courage and awareness, certainly, to be in the world, <clears throat> to look around, to see what's really not making sense or what's not real or what is a false narrative or however we want to describe it. So many of us go through life and we see these types of things and we, we shake our heads, we roll our eyes, we might post about it on Facebook. It takes something else to be able to move from understanding and knowing to then taking action. And it strikes me that that's what you have done your entire life. You, you've had that bravery and that courage to say, I'm going to be a witness and. Yeah, because if I didn't act and make of my days action, then I would feel like a failed witness. And mm. I don't know what that little step is. I know a lot of people say, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And sometimes when they say that to me, these ears know it's not true. It's like habit talk, mm. right? It's it's old thinking, afraid, you know? And so we have to undo that and kind of rethink that statement, I'm too afraid to do something. So I don't know exactly what it is because I've never felt particularly bold or brave. I don't think of myself as the bold, brave woman who is different than everyone else. You know, I I think the formula for me has always been to see what breaks my heart, to see what turns my heart on fire, and to have those two things make love. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, what breaks my heart is the shape of the world or homophobia or nuclear proliferation. And what makes my heart really get on fire is moving around, change. Mm. If something, if it's not changing, I get nervous. So I, I like change. You know, I fly back and forth every chance I get to the East Coast, West Coast. You know, I have a house in the East and a house in the West because I'm both. I'm the East Coast kid and I'm the West Coast kid. <laughs> I need change. So when it occurs to me that I'm in breakdown. I'm getting anxiety attacks because of Ronald Reagan talking about Star Wars Mm. and the whole world is building up nuclear stockpiles and I'm one person in Syracuse, New York. I start Syracuse cultural workers with four other social activists in order to officially professionally sit down and make a plan. So we're going to create artwork that educates people about justice and injustice. It's going to be beauty informing, you know, calendars, date books, note cards, bumper stickers, flags, what every single medium we can do. And in the course of that work, 
it felt like accidental. I go to my workbench and there's a copy of the hundredth monkey. And when I read the hundredth monkey story, I went right across the street to the bank and gave the teller a $20 bill and said, I can change the world through my thoughts. So I'm going to go around the world and be a stand for peace. Well, she didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but she took my $20 bill. I said, when I get $5,000, I'm leaving. You know, she's just going, yeah, right, honey. You know, chewing her gum like, right. What kind of fool are you? And so it took me about a year and a half to save $5,000 because that was a lot of money. Plus, I needed another 2000 for film and Kodak mailers. So I worked, you know, waitress jobs, dishwashing jobs, Syracuse culture workers. We only paid ourselves six bucks an hour, so I couldn't work there full time. But, you know, just a bunch of different jobs in order to get my money and then start that trip around the world where I was. I call myself a feminist photographer with a slideshow on the U.S. peace movement and the U.S. women's movement. I was not an educator. I was an activist artist. So that's how it went. I'm talking with author and activist Jan Phillips. If you're enjoying this episode, please head over to iTunes and submit a review so more listeners can find us. Next, Jan's peace pilgrimage around the world brings her face-to-face with one of the most traumatic events in U.S. history. So I started in Japan because that's the first country when we go east. Japan, I started in Hiroshima, Nagasaki. So I get invited to speak at the Peace Museum in Nagasaki. The word there for the atom bomb survivors is called hibakusha. It means survivor of the bomb. So I got an interview set up with one of these survivors in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we're all going to go to the museum and we're going to see a film that a Japanese film director had just created with recently released military footage from the U.S. Army. And and then I was going to talk. I was going to present my focus on peace slideshow about the peace movement in the U.S. And I had an interpreter. So the problem was nobody had screened this film. Nobody knew it was going to take us into the cockpit. Mm -hmm. Oh, heavens. Right into the cockpit of the Enola Gay, which is the name of the plane that dropped the bomb. So we were like in the pilot seat. It was just awful because, you know, the Japanese, it hurts them to emote kind of, you know, they're not conditioned for emotion. And so we're all in the room. And not only do we see that bomb fall down on Nagasaki, we see the whole mushroom shaped cloud. And then we see the survivors on the ground, just flesh dripping off, just totally irradiated, death, carnage everywhere. And some of them saw, some of them saw themselves. Mm. And it was the worst thing you could ever experience in this room of Japanese survivors who have just been trying to live their humble lives, being exposed to this horrific nightmare all over again. So, and I'm sitting next to the director of the Nagasaki Museum, and he just put his head down on the table and sobbed and wept, and everybody's bodies are just shaking, and you hear, 
you know how that feeling when we stopped crying and mm -hmm. it was awful. And the lights stayed out as the film was about 30 minutes long. As soon as it was done, nobody turned the lights out until all the wailing and everything stopped. And then, so the guy says, all right, it's your turn now. And I, there was hardly anything I could do. I just stood up and start crying mm. and just said, mm. you know, I am so sorry. I, I'm so sorry to be here representing my country that did this. And I have some images that will make us feel better. I promise. Mm. And that a soundtrack of the, the International Kid Children's Choir singing Let There Be Peace on Earth was a soundtrack. And there was great images because in, back in the 1983-84, we were in demonstrating in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Washington, New York. More people gathered in New York in 83 in June than ever before I'd gathered for any rally. And so I have, and including a lot of Buddhists came over from Japan carrying their Buddhist signs. So there was things that they could relate to. So the people were really appreciative because they they came up afterwards and said, we thought we were all alone, that nobody cared, nobody remembered. And wow. seeing your pictures was so good because we know we're not alone. And that made me feel like, there you go. That's the power. This is why we do our art because people can get healed by it, even back sideways, backwards, right. 40 years after, whatever. Right. And then how it changed me, because I was out there for a year and a half, was that I didn't know all what I'm going through. I didn't know that I'm day to day. I think I'm the same person. But when I'm flying home on the plane, I realize this is not the same person. My first real awakening was, uh-oh, Christianity is too small for me now. Because mm. the Christians like to say, you know, Jesus is important, right? Yeah. Yep. Only thing is Jesus. Yep. Well, Jesus is important, but not the only thing. So I realized I was different. But I didn't know how different until I got into Syracuse. And then when it was time to cobble a life together, you know, I went back to culture workers for a little while, but I was a new me. And I was, my soul had grown its proportions. And so I was way less spiritual when I left. So cultural workers worked for me because they were way more leftist, Marxist, you know, progressives don't want to mix spirituality up and the whole thing. Religion is the opiate of people. So when I came back and go to culture workers, it's like, oh man, I'm totally a different person and I need to get out of here. So yeah. I had a good friend who was a CSJ nun and we bought a farm, an old farmhouse in upstate New York with 125 acres for $54,000. Wow. Our parents helped us both get that. We had a small mortgage. And that's when I realized it was like a hermitage. That's when I realized I had gone from being a political activist to a spiritual contemplative. Mm. And now I'm both. The end. It's so powerful. And I think it's really helpful for people to understand your experience. When we hear you, we can look at our own lives, both past and present, and think right. about the future a little differently. So 
it's so important to, to, to share these stories and I'm grateful. So you are a spiritual contemplative and a social activist. What's happening with that now? My creative work for the past year has been to do a spiritual memoir because as a facilitator of spiritually intelligent creativity, I encounter people all the time who are still hugely gripped by religion. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem for them because religion in many cases is installed like corrupt software. And so we don't know who we are. Who am I, you know, other than a sinner, right. other than a pervert, you know? Yep. And so we have to learn how to individuate. And I feel like my job this go around is to wean people off religion and to introduce them to their own divinity and to cause there to be a way of speaking about that that doesn't insult our soul and that it doesn't sound too blasphemous, although I realize I do sound blasphemous. Well, it's a different way of thinking. It's an, a different way of imagining spirituality. It's a different way of imagining the idea of God, of divinity. People will have different thoughts about this, but essentially these are ideas that emerged over time. With, you know, our ancestors had questions and they didn't have answers. They didn't know whether, they didn't know science the way we know it today. Right. So they had to count on the tribal leaders and the tribal leaders aren't going to say, I don't know. Right. So they make up stories. And right. back then they thought the earth was flat and they had these layers and up on the third layer could be a being. They were doing the best they could with what they understood at the they, time. Th yeah, and it worked well. It didn't work well because it continued to cause wars. But it's what we were. It's what we inherited. Right. It's what we have to work with. And so now, I mean, I say my prayers every single day for an hour, and I start out. I light my candle and I start out imaging not a being on a throne, but imaging it in the air that I breathe, mm. imaging that love power, that energy, that creative energy that causes creation to just keep, like after these forest fires are over, the hills turn green, pronto. <laughs> creation mm. can't help mm. herself. Mm. And so that's who you and me are. That's who whoever's, that's what we are, creation. So we're part of that whole great scheme of things. We're short life, die, under the ground, be nutrients for the earth, come up again as a mushroom. Yep. It's like, it's yep. a great cycle. I, I believe you are very much a voice for how we can think about something that goes beyond religion. You know, in my view, religion is a stepping stone. We needed it for a while, but we've been slowly moving away because we intuitively and we scientifically and we as human beings just know more and we know that there is something different and it's not the rigid dogma of an angry God. It is something much more holistic, something much more embracing. We can call it love. That doesn't even do the idea of justice. Something that will bring us together and create unity seems to me a much more valuable resource than something that causes fear and division. And that's where I think a lot of people, why so many people have moved away from organized religion. It's just 
it's not working anymore. Yeah, it doesn't work anymore. Anything with all men in charge doesn't work. And then there's the whole patriarchal part of it. It's homophobic, it's patriarchal, it's sexist, it's all wrong in so many ways. Well, except the New Thought churches are good because they're founded in a higher consciousness about um, the science of spirituality, the metaphysics of our consciousness. And so they've done New Thought, either Church of, well, it used to be CSR, what? Church of Spirit Religious Science. It's now called Centers for Spiritual Renewal, I think. And the Unity Churches. I trust them so completely. I go to a Unity Church when I can, and I teach at, I'm guest preaching at a lot of them, because they're committed to creating a sacred space for people to actually gather in the name of their own spiritual well-being and evolution. And then they put somebody on the platform they call it they don't use those churchy words <laughs> talk from the platform i always say i want to preach i want to do my homily from the pulpit <laughs> so anyway they give minds like this a chance to infiltrate and and meet with the minds yeah. and the pews because it's all one mind right one that's, mind that's right if we dare to uh, allow ourselves to question, to, to really give voice to those things that we intuitively understand, whether it's religion or politics or whatever. And we, we have to be able to give voice to these things that we, we know instinctively and intuitively are part of a universal truth. We're, we're like giving God a change of address card. <laughs> so That's instead good. of the old notion, which is out there, up there, in here, yeah. up yeah. Right. Right. And we, we because I mean, you look at the mystics, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, in what in many ways they're whack jobs, right? And you can't relate. But every <laughs> once in a while they'll say very astute, clear lines, like all the way to heaven is heaven. Or we mm. are the arms and the feet, the mouth and the ears of the great being. Yes. And those lines are it. Yep. Here are the eyes and the ears, the mouth and the being of that great one. And I, I believe that. Yeah. I don't believe there's a being floating around in outer space. I believe there's love. And if I was to say of a holy trinity, I would say it's love, intelligence, and beauty. Mm-hmm. Unembodied. Planets become the embodiment. The galaxies are it. And those finite forms are us and we're the body. And and we're here for such a short period of time and we can either allow ourselves to understand and be the embodied spirit of all of of what is good and beautiful and love, or we can, or we cannot, (laughs) you know? Or we cannot. Or we can stand still and try and hold back the tide and be stupid and die um, having not lived a meaningful life. Right. People are making those choices. Every day. As humans, we've always been making those choices. And there's always a current. Maybe maybe our inclination initially is to just hold on to shore, hold on to the rocks and the roots of those trees and don't let go. But the current is there. The current is always moving us forward. And we can trust that we if we just let go and we trust where that current's going to take us is going to be beyond anything that we can imagine we can either trust that or we can hold on to shore and be 
bombarded by everything that's coming through and die clinging. Help us understand all the ways that you bring art into, into this conversation and, and into the world and how you give voice to, to, your, to these thoughts through your art. Okay, so everyone, you know, well, not everyone, but so many people say I'm not creative because people have creativity associated with paintings, right? Maybe yep. photographs. And so that's the first wrong thinking because, you know, we're raised by people that want us to be safe, to not get murdered, to not show up big, to hide out, right? Mm -hmm. So your parents' job is to keep you small so you'll be safe. Very few people are raised to be big, bold, creative thinkers, but we're part of creation unfolding. So every single thing is a creative thing. And those people who think they're not creative because they're not producing products, books, cards, photos, whatever, are creating stories. Every single day they have experiences There'll be one that gets stuck in their craw. Something happened. Someone did them wrong. They drive home making up the whole story. They were the villains. I'm the hero. They tell it to their partner at happy hour. That's creativity. <laughs> They're not doing the greatest job with it because, you know, to tell a story, there's it's good if you have a moral at the end, right? <laughs> so every story needs a conflict. So we experience conflict in order to have something to meet up with, to put a thumbprint on, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have conflict, you go right through something. So mm -hmm. it gives us something to resist and fight back. You know, I have a, a cousin who is taking care of her mom who's becoming demented. And the mom's becoming ornery and mean and she was just right down the road from me in a in a camp on Lake Bonaparte and every day she would come down in tears and every day I would say do not think this has anything to do with you. your job as a spiritual being is to let all things happen and not hook you mm. And this river's trying to flow through you, but you got dams in here collecting debris, and then you bring it into my space. And so the whole summer was like a teaching of, I, I must admit I failed at it, but we can't control what, what works or not. But I knew as a teacher, I was saying to her, every day, see if you can have, you know, one hour where you don't get hooked. I'm just saying that we all encountered conflicts. Conflicts are the only way we get any wisdom and build our character. So we should be grateful for these conflicts, maybe not as they occur. Hmm. But once you harvest a conflict and then you realize, oh, man, I see why that happened. Even me getting kicked out of the convent. You know, I had ultimately to learn two things. One, there's nothing to forgive. You know, I was really mad at them because they'd done me wrong. But... They did the greatest thing anyone could have ever done for me by giving me two years of a monastic life and letting me go hmm. to, you know, yeah. to become yeah. the real butterfly. Yes. And, and then I created the whole thing, 
you know, you don't just go around kissing novices and expect not to get in trouble. So I was just flippant about obedience. One of the vows I was supposed to take, I was flippant about everything, poverty, chastity, you know, I stole money. I had cigarettes. I got wine. It was like, I got myself kicked out, but they opened the door for me. So I wouldn't have to like saw the lock off. It was a blessing. Took me 20 years to get over the trauma of it. I guess we're always living in a time of uncertainty. There are always things going on that just uh, make our blood curdle, that, that, that get us angry, that bring angst into our lives that we just don't understand. Uncertainty is what we can count on in life. Like you said, things are always changing. We are living in a, in a very u- unique time. At least it feels like that in my lifetime. And I'm wondering... How can creative expression guide us through this? How, how can we expand how we think about ourselves and the world around us through creativity with our imaginations? Well, you figure out what medium you like to work in first. That helps. Like I only do kind of one thing at a time. So when I'm doing my memoir, I don't go, oh, I think I'll work on a song today. I don't try and mix my mediums up. So you figure out, If I asked you, what medium do you like to work in? You might say, oh, I really like taking photos. iPhone photography is brilliant. Mm. So if that's Mm -hmm. your favorite thing, then you probably have Instagram and you upload one photo a day on your iPhone, right? I'm an iPhone. I just got a GoPro and now I'm looking into drones. But I think iPhone photography is it. So unless you got your Nikons and all that, which I have. So anyway, whatever you got is perfect for right Mm. now. So then you think, well, how can I use this in the service of peace and justice? It's like back in 82, 83, I made slideshows with two projectors, a dissolve unit, a soundtrack, da, 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 da. Took forever. You're never (laughs) going to do that again. You can do it in iMovie. Put your photos on the track. I buy royalty-free music, 40 bucks for it. I can use my own music now because I've produced enough music. But we want to find ways to share with other people to legally put something together that can be socially shared and have it be our unique creation. And it could be, say, your photo. You, can, If you're scared of poetry, do a haiku. What's that? Five lines or something. You know, Google haiku. It's very easy. Get yourself used to writing a thing that connects nature with justice or or sorrow with your heart's desire, right? It's very, very easy. You don't have to be Mary Oliver. And then you have a photograph and then you can turn it into, let me see if I have some. This is a little pamphlet of photographs and images. It's like 12 pages. My friend Ruth and I go out, we take photographs, and then she made this little, I don't know, giveaway book. I don't know what she calls it, but it's kind of nice. And you can, you know, there are bazillions of, of places, Vista print, instant print, blurb, snapfish, would yep. turn your photos and your words into little pamphlets. These things I make constantly. They're I they're creeds. Whenever I have a bunch of creeds, they're postcards, oversized postcards, right? This is called an apostles creed. 
Hmm. It's my way of saying, this is what I believe. And it's just a picture of my niece walking on the beach, right? This is examination of conscience. It's a picture of the sky with a park bench and 10 Zen questions. You, you put it together. And I'll tell you, this is one thing that started out being a photography exhibit mm -hmm. at Syracuse stage. And they just take pictures out of wherever your mom kept the darling pictures of you in her shoe box. You get the pictures, you scan them, and you write a few sentences about that picture. Yeah. You yeah. have just created your first memoir. It's too easy. This got printed at Kinko's. It's too easy. So you don't have to be a songwriter. You just have to be a person who really means it about healing yourself in the world. Because nothing heals us better than our own creative gestures, because that act takes roots us in the present moment. You can't be creating anything when you're thinking about the past or thinking about the future. So whenever we do anything that roots us in the present, our prayer should be that, but sometimes we're distracted. But the creative act gets us whole soul, solely engaged with the present. But that's why it heals us, doing the one thing. And not to fret over, oh, it's not going to be as good as Jan Phillips or it's not going to be as good as Adele or whatever. None of us are as good as the next one. My CDs are not a professional musician singing. They're an average Joe Blow saying, I have some beautiful spiritual songs here that will make you feel good, that will give you some new ways to think about the divine, that will cause you to fall in love with your own soulful events. And here, and I will not hurt you, but it's no well-produced you know Motown event especially when I invited my singing for the soul group and they're a motley crew who sing off key so it's raw yeah but it heals me and it heals anyone who hears it so you have to figure out if you really mean it you want to have a life with passion and meaning and purpose then that means you plug in to your social community and see what's going on that's not right, where there's inequities, inequalities, injustice, and figure out, you know, we're all trying to figure out about Black Lives Matter right now because yeah. it's been pointed out to us we cannot keep bringing Black people in to talk about the problem. Right, right. We have to solve this problem on our own. So white folks now are now trying to figure out how do I do that? And so when I put my thinking cap on, in a few days, I'm Living Kindness. My foundation is sponsoring a black woman poet, Dorothy Randall Gray, doing a workshop on writing about our rage, writing about our feelings in these times of upheaval. And then the week after that, Barbara Haber, who's a psychoanalyst, poetry editor for the psychoanalyst journal, she is introducing some African-American poems to the Zoom event so we can learn 
more about what are black poets telling us mm. about the world they inhabit. It's not a critique of poetry. It's right. not, oh, call up a black person and have them tell us how hard it is. It's none of that. It's us reckoning with our privilege and with how do we undo this terrible world of injustice. Well, I've been a part of the communities that you've created, Jan, and, and they have been truly just people coming together in a safe space. And I think safe is an important word to use and an open-hearted space where ideas can be expressed and conversation can take place. It's so important. Open-hearted. So, totally. Yep. Good so, word. So go to janphillips.com and sign up for the, for the Muse letter. Um, that is the, the best way to keep in touch with everything that Jan is doing. And she's always got something going on, well worth your time. I mean, you will get lost in all of the beauty uh, of the words. There's music. You can watch Jan. Oh, my podcast too. That's how you can access her podcast. Absolutely. So highly recommend it. It's a, it's a treat and a treasure and something not to be missed. Up next, the lightning round of quirky questions. First question, what makes you awestruck? What makes you say, wow? Oh, one thing that makes me say wow is when I'm when I'm sleeping at my camp on the lake, I'm I can hear all night long the loons talking to each other. The sound of a loon is hauntingly beautiful. That makes me in my drowsy, sleepy state go, oh wow, so beautiful. And I just went up to White Face Mountains in the Adirondacks and I saw a hundred miles all the way into Canada. Wow. That wow. Yeah, that's a wow. That did. What is the kindest thing someone has ever done for you? Well, when I was going on my peace pilgrimage around the world, everybody put me up for a year and a half. I only stayed in one hotel in Alexandria, Egypt, because I needed to be alone. But people, even if I was in a pig barn, I had a place that here, sleep here tonight. In the U.S., the kindest thing was when I bought Muse Lodge up at the lake, Bonaparte, my friend Barbara Haber and her husband, Shelly, rented a, like a 24-foot U-Haul truck, filled it up. He had just sold his mattress coming. I had 14 beds. Filled it up with mattresses, dressers, chairs, furnitures, rugs, everything I would need that they were, I don't know, they were upscaling or something where I don't know where it came from. But they unloaded this 24-foot truck full of stuff. And when I sit in that house, I'm surrounded by what's just screaming out, love you, love you, all the time. What is your favorite tree? Maple, because of the sap, because of the colors. Redwood, because of the redwood. <laughs> yeah, all you have to do is say redwood. What, yeah. is your, what is your favorite smell? Coconut vanilla. Oh, nice. What is your least favorite smell? Bananas. Oh, it's interesting. What is your favorite kitchen utensil? I think I'm most happy using a whisk because I'm whisking up my blueberry pancakes. <laughs> upon which goes a lot of maple syrup. <laughs> there you go. Tree. You have threaded the themes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, Jan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to What's Art Got to Do With It? I'm Deb Ondo. To follow Jan, Visit her website at janphillips.com. 
and check out the show notes on what's art got to do with it.com. And if you enjoyed this show, please head over to iTunes and submit a review so more listeners can find us. Thank you for being here.